great man theory. That's how leadership was defined by the characteristics and, you know, uh, behaviors of in the height of great men, certain, only certain great men, you know, uh, let's, let's be clear. And now that theory has, of course, been, you know, rejected. Uh, we've moved on, absolutely, and rightfully so. But if we look at <laughs> the number of Fortune 500 CEOs, for example, um, just the kind of the representation at the very top of organizations, I can't help but to see great man theory still in action uh, because that just we we're not um, we're not seeing the the representation that we should if we're actually truly valuing uh, different perspectives and different leadership and then really kind of looking uh, for leadership in in different places and so that's like a just one example of you know the fruit might have fallen off the tree but the tree is still the tree. Hi. My name is Nadia Nagamutu, business psychologist, coach, speaker, and founder of Avenir Consulting, which creates organizational growth and success via inclusion and diversity. We've been discussing the benefits that diversity brings to companies' bottom line performance for decades with more and more evidence. But there are so many questions organizations still have about how to achieve it. How do you create a culture where people feel valued for their uniqueness and the qualities they bring? I believe it's crucial to the future success and sustainability of every organization that they find the answer to this question to make sure that each employee is not only supported but also appreciated. With this podcast, I aim to get some of the key challenges to creating inclusive workplaces out in the open and start uncovering the solutions to embracing a culture that cares for everyone. I'm going to be having conversations with some of the most inspiring people in different countries and across industries who are pushing the boundaries on inclusion and diversity in the workplace from topics such as parenting in the workplace, ethnicity, age, gender, mental health, and all things inclusion. I want to create a movement to change society through sharing life experiences and creating more empathy and connection. Why care? I believe that once we have organizations and societies that accept and value everyone for who they are, we become healthier, happier, and better in our roles, both inside and outside work. Hello and welcome to episode 37 of Why Care. My name is Nadia Nagamutu and I am your host. I am so excited to have the wonderful Jenny Vasquez Newsom on the show. Jenny is the founder of Untapped Leaders, a leadership development organisation and consulting firm specialising in uncovering overlooked capacities of diverse teams. She's the author of Untapped Leadership, Harnessing the Power of Underrepresented Leaders, which was released in June this year. Over the past two decades, Jenny has worked with over 500 leaders from more than 200 organisations, ranging from established executives at large corporations to high school students beginning their career journeys. In this episode, we go to the roots of how our understanding of leadership has been created. Jenny discusses the systemic biases in leadership theories and how the scarcity model of leadership, that leaders can only be the very few at the top, limits the involvement of everyone, particularly those of marginalised groups. Jenny shares how leaders from untapped ethnic groups can offer so much nuanced understanding of how to lead, through their own experiences of what has and hasn't worked for them and others. We also have a fascinating conversation about what Jenny terms a stealth cleanup, as well as reframing imposter syndrome as a systemic deficit rather than an individual one. Enjoy. Jenny. 
It is an absolute pleasure to have you on YCare. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm so excited to be here. I've been looking forward to this for a while. <laughs> yeah, me too. Ever since we were on Andre Darmanin's show, the Global Conversations podcast together, and as soon as I heard you speaking, I was like, oh my goodness, I need Jenny on my show. You're so kind. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so great to be here. I'm so excited. And of course, you know, when we did share that platform together, I learned about you publishing your book. And I have to say, it's, it's one of the best books that I've read on inclusive leadership because it just reframed things so beautifully. It really made me think about a different way of looking at leadership in general and, and what we're missing in leadership theory and behavior and everything that we see. That means so much. Thank you for saying that. You know, as you write, you never know what will land or what won't. So that really does mean a lot uh, to hear. Of course. Just to begin with, because my audience might not necessarily know who you are, your background, but also how you came to write Untapped Leadership, Harnessing the Power of Underrepresented Leaders. So if you wouldn't mind starting there. Yeah, well, I'll do a brief summary of how I got here. So my background is in education and leadership development. So I worked in the nonprofit sector and higher education and always kind of around spaces that were developing others in some capacity. So either students or adults and, you know, executives really kind of working with those through leadership development experiences and programs that supported them in their career journeys. For me, though, after a couple decades thinking about the management courses I've taken, the leadership courses I've taken, the books I had read, the, those that were assigned on the syllabi, and then even the frameworks that I would train and, and kind of facilitate around, I had a moment in 2020, which was you know very much a core-shaking year for a lot of us, reflecting on the realization that you know almost all of those frameworks and all of those books that were assigned were written and created by those that didn't look like me, probably didn't have someone like me in mind. And that's where untapped leadership really came about. Um, it was in that moment of really reflecting on my own leadership experience, as well as those that, you know, really had deep impact on me and also weren't represented in, in those books and in those frameworks. Uh, the leaders of color that I found to be so purposeful and effective and strategic, all these aspects of leadership that I really learned from, and yet I hadn't read about them in the books, or at least they weren't the quote-unquote top um, leadership books that, yes. that were there. And so Untapped Leadership was really just, you know, an opportunity to elbow a little room in the conversation and bring in mm. other perspectives and really hopefully encourage folks to understand that there's a lot of value in some of these overlooked voices that, yes. that we haven't tapped into over the last few centuries. And so yeah, that's really where it all just kind of came about um, and then just spilled out of me in that moment after decades of doing the work. Yeah. And thank you so much for writing it. And you interviewed a number of leaders from different ethnic backgrounds in particular, right? That's right. And what was the reason for that? Why did you want to highlight some of the those voices in across the book? Because you've got little boxes in the book where you give offer those quotes. Tell me a little bit more why you decided to do that. Yeah, well, I think I'll, one thing I'll mention first is that untapped leadership in kind of harnessing the power of underrepresented leaders really was focused on 
racially marginalized leaders and yes. really just to create the case, to create the story, the narrative, to, to show and amplify the experiences of those that have been overlooked. And that really brings in the stories, the vignettes, the the actual experiences of yeah. those and that we can all, again, learn from. It really was a, a mechanism to bring some of the frameworks and kind of approaches that I put forth to life so that this really was a book that was grounded in the realities and experiences uh, and expertise of racially marginalized leaders. That said, though, marginalization or like the ways we kind of experience being othered or not being kind of, a, you know, on the sidelines of our professional spaces really is much wider than than just race. And so that's where, you know, I always want to highlight when kind of talking about this book is that there's so much more that we can start to of really expand on and think about when we think about quote unquote underrepresented leaders. And so I use the stories and this like, you know, particular perspective to make the narrative, to bring in kind of those voices that again were overlooked. But I hope it sparks this opportunity to really think about all the ways that we can have others' perspectives yeah. in this leadership conversation. Of course, yeah. for sure. I hear you. Like, yeah. you decided to shine a lens on one particular aspect of underrepresented voices. And it doesn't mean that it's limited to that. It's just that the book shines a light on that particular group. In the very early part of your book, it really started me thinking about everything I'd learned in my undergrad psychology Okay, so you talk through leadership theories and it struck me that I'd never, particularly at the age of 18, 19, you know, when I was studying my, my undergrad, I never really critically reviewed who these psychologists were that were creating these theories. I just took it as, you know, this is what we were being taught. It was the curriculum. I learned it. I reeled off who said what, but didn't really challenge the lens that these leadership theories were being created, and at i.e. that of white men predominantly. Yeah. And it really made me think when I read that very first chapter of your book, what do you think are the biggest risks here with achieving in inclusion when we're promoting leaders that are based on those theories and assessments that are predominantly developed by white leaders and researched on people of a white background? Yeah. To answer kind of very clearly, I think the biggest risk is how subtly permeated this is, exists within our definitions of leadership, of, you know, yeah. really the leadership that we value or the leadership that we just trust. When, why I wrote that in the way I did and really kind of going back um, and almost go like era by era, decade by decade, theory by theory showing that it has only been certain perspectives. And again, in, in this case, it's been white and, and male. And even in that, the, the researchers that are asking the questions, that are interpreting the results, that are finding the you know research participants, that are going to also largely be of that same homogenous group, then we've built a foundation that sits on on these definitions and so now every time there's a deviation or it's something that's a little different then it like it has to test that foundation that's hard we kind of are sitting on this on these roots and as we kind of talked about that have us 
reflecting on leadership and interpreting leadership in a certain way from the moment we arrive on this planet, we're honestly, you know, and so it's just very hard to like peel away from that and move away from that. And I think that's maybe not the biggest risk, but the biggest challenge. Um, And I think the biggest risk is, is that we just so embedded within it that we risk not evolving. Yeah, because and we were so entrenched. Um, and so that that's what I think of the biggest risk. It's so invisible as well. Like, I don't know how I've been influenced by the psychological theories of leadership that right. I've read and studied. Right. But of course, I have been. For me, I will absolutely have been influenced, guided in terms of my framework, my understanding of what leadership is based on those theories. I've never deconstructed that framework it just is it's it's evolved over time based on what society what research what psychologists have said what good leadership is so it's a huge challenge and you mentioned there about roots and that brings me on to a really beautiful metaphor which made me stop and think when you read this you use the metaphor of trees as a way of understanding leadership what you call the roots of our current narratives, which is kind of what we're talking about here, right? The roots of where we learn what leadership is, right? And so you say, if we are to consider our current interpretations of leadership as fruit born of that tree, we have not examined its source closely enough before taking a bite. So beautiful, so visual, I loved it. Can you please expand on that? Yes, what I'm trying to kind of narrate or really explain is we can't consider and think about leadership in our current present state, how we define it, how we see it exercised, who is in positions of leadership, all all those aspects, without going to those roots, to the historical context of which this has all been built. And this is where a lot of my work really sits of like, how has this context informed the present moment. You know, when we kind of think about the fruit bearing tree, that phrase of like the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, you know, all those narratives around that. I think that's very true. Like we can't assume that we are uh, devoid of that that history. I'll give one example. Um, So, you know, if in that first chapter, I start with great man theory being kind of the birth of the modern day use of the word leadership. And so that was in in the 19th century. And it is what it was, you know, great man theory. That's how leadership was defined by the characteristics and, you know, uh, behaviors of the height of great men. Yeah, certain, only certain great men, let's be clear. And now that theory has, of course, been rejected. Uh, We've moved on, absolutely, and rightfully so. But if we look at the number of Fortune 500 CEOs, for example, the representation at the very top of organizations, I can't help but to see great man theory still in action because we're not seeing the representation that we should if we're actually truly valuing different perspectives and different leadership and then really kind of looking for leadership in in different places. And so that's like a just one example. The fruit might have fallen off the tree, but the tree is still the tree. And the earlier and like the clearer we get about that, I think that's where we have the best opportunity to know, okay, well, now what? What is going to be the leadership of this next century? Um, And how can we shift and be more 
truthfully inclusive um, and really value the the diverse perspectives that exist in reality. Yeah. Um, that's really what I'm trying to get at with that. It's beautiful. And, I, and it made me think, you know, if every time I have a thought of any kind, you know, a thought which inevitably comes from the very roots of what I've learned as a child, if I was to study and really understand where that assessment or assumptions or beliefs comes from, so observing the fruit, as you put it, that's kind of what we're after for leaders to do, to observe, to really self-reflect where possible. Obviously, we're not, you know, we're living fast-paced lives. It's not always easy to start assessing every thought we have, but to really start questioning, is a fruit, is the idea, is the belief that I have born from a certain root that might not necessarily be that helpful when it comes to inclusion. Yeah, absolutely. Just to that piece of around self-reflection, because I, I do think that's like so essential um, in, that in finding space to do that is challenging. Yeah. And I think, you know, a lot of times where I work with leaders will say that like understanding context is probably one of the core leadership skills that folks need to have. But to understand context you need to have space. This idea of balancing thought and action so that actions are not just driving forward or kind of doing things as we always do, or not really thinking about those roots um, of why I'm making these decisions, realizing that I've maybe inadvertently excluded some perspectives or all those aspects. That takes space. Um, and so that's, I think, one of another challenge of like today's world is that we're not really given that space to do that. And so then status quo kind of continues. We just keep on the same hamster wheel, um, so yeah. to speak. So you talk about and we you've just explained this whole kind of heroic leadership, the scarcity model of leadership, which suggests that leaders can only be the very few. And actually I love the way you challenge that. Why can't everyone be leaders? Why are we always looking for these elite, few people at the top to be leaders? So how does that sort of thinking limit our progress towards DEI? Yeah, when we think about kind of organizational structures, we think about kind of very triangular and exactly. leaders, the leadership is concentrated at the very top. So of course, when you think about a triangle, that's a very thin top and then a wide base. So if we're kind of interpreting leadership in that way, we've left out a whole bunch of people. We left out most of us in that. And again, when we kind of have mm -hmm. that conversation around representation and who is in those top rungs, then by default, we're now equating leadership with that very thin base and not that representative. Um, and so really what I want to challenge is, of course, that definition of leadership, that an organizational chart should not be a leadership map. It shouldn't say, okay, the leaders are all up here and then here's everyone else. It really should be how is leadership exercised at every level? How can this be a more circular representation in a way of anyone, no matter what position? How can those that actually can make leadership choices and like and behaviors and, and really engage and we value that leadership at every level that isn't assigned to title. And so, you know, I think as I 
really kind of name and define leadership in the book is really around kind of this idea of contextual agility, like really grounded in context and being able to be agile in that context. And I'll tell you, I've seen leaders who are in high school that do this and leaders who are in entry level roles that do this. Like, and so that just, I want to blow away the definition of, again, that, yeah. that very top of the organizational chart as the leadership, because then we won't notice all the ways others are being exactly. leaders. Um, and that's exactly. just by design. And so we, we want to redesign that 100%. Yeah. Just scrap what we already believe and just start again. Yeah. Right. Let's just sort of focus in a bit more about what underrepresented or as you call it, untapped leaders can bring to organizations, to leadership. Okay. Because you explain in your book that people from marginalized groups can see what you say, the full picture, right? Because of what they've experienced. They're more equipped with ingenuity and with skill. And you say they have a more layered understanding of critical work challenges and leadership approaches that are more connected to context than dominant perspectives. And I'm really curious, as you read that, I was thinking, I wonder what Jenny means by you know, marginalized groups or people from underrepresented ethnic groups can see the full picture, that they have a more layered understanding. What does that mean? Yeah, so this is really connected to standpoint theory, which is based by a feminist researcher, Dr. Sandra Harding. And I won't get into like the nitty gritty of it, but basically Dr. Harding's theory around standpoint really stems from, in her field, again, with a lot of white and male researchers that were kind of the first authors and publications that were getting kind of the, the big grants, all, all those perspectives. And she posited that really what, again, the case I'm making with untapped leadership is that that is certain perspective. And, and when you're kind of thinking about the research questions, the nature of the study, the interpretation of the results from a particular perspective, and if it's a dominant perspective, then you actually may miss a lot of the other context of reality because you haven't experienced this marginalized perspective in a way. So, you know, for her, it was really around women and, and representation in that space. What I really want to kind of frame and connect to in the ways that the nature and the definition of leadership hasn't resonated for me or the way that work and the kind of careers and professional, you know, all these aspects of career-minded lives hasn't worked for me. That gives me now a perspective of what doesn't work for, for me, but it might not work for others either. And it also gives me this lens of realizing like maybe things that work for me might not work for others as well. And so just having kind of experienced as a biracial black woman in the leadership space that's largely dominated again by others that don't look like me whose voice is valued more when we kind of look at that then i see this from this outside perspective and that's what offers me this opportunity to kind of think about what's untapped like really now there's aspects that i mm. i think we're missing and i don't think if you've kind of experienced your trajectory kind of in that core, in that center, in that, you know, the, and very aligned with in the last few centuries of work, 
that you might not be able to see those aspects. There's an image that I leverage of an elephant and there are all these like people around the elephant at different parts, like looking really closely at it and saying, oh, well, it's a rug or it's a it's a mat or like really kind of misinterpreting what in the elephant is because they're just too close to it. I would say that a lot of us who are underrepresented, marginalized, like really kind of on the outskirts are maybe looking at the elephant from afar. I was like, yeah. well, that's an elephant. And that's really kind of the case that I'm trying to make yeah. is that in the variety of ways, and again, it's not only race, it's a lot of different lived experiences that give us that nuance, that context that offers us insight into how to lead because we know that life is different for everybody, that people show up to work with different loads um, with different experiences and and that then helps us to be agile within the context within reality one of the things i thought oh gosh that's a really bold statement that jenny just made there because you can the the risk is that we get the cis hetero white male leader completely on the defensive saying well what do you mean you know i can't see the full picture and so are you actually saying that people from a sort of ethnic minority, marginalized group would make better leaders because they can see more? I appreciate that question. I appreciate kind of tackling this head on. I would just very clearly say no. In no way, as we have even kind of think th- thought about in the last couple of centuries, in no way does someone's race, identity, sexuality equate them to leadership. Because then we get back to some of the very problematic aspects that where we began. Um, And so, no. And for the cis hetero white men that are listening, that are reading the book, I just kind of I engage with a lot of them that that really work still resonates because one, I will argue or I, I bet there's an aspect of everyone in some respect that maybe marginalized, um, that there's something that there is a particular perspective that maybe they don't bring into the workplace, they don't consider, there might be something to learn or unpack there. Uh-huh. And two, ultimately, the goal of this conversation is how can we all, regardless of identity markers, et cetera, lead in a way that cultivates and encourages the untapped capacities of others. And so for leaders in cis hetero male, really kind of, I mean, there is a challenge here. This is the kind of the call to action of really yeah. questioning and saying, okay, what am I missing? We exactly. all are missing something. We all are missing something because we cannot know everything and we don't have all the yeah. experiences. So that's baseline. We have a baseline here. But if you kind of reflect on it and has been smoother because of seeing people that look like you in the books, seeing people that look like you in the boardroom, having this like network of connections that kind of smooth the path up, then my challenge is to kind of really honestly reflect of like, okay, well, how is that limiting me as a leader? Uh, Because I now am realizing I may not have the full depth of perspective. Um, And so... I hope that answers it because I do. Yeah, I yes. do want to. Be, and I appreciate that question because I do want to be very clear like that. Then we just are going back to the problematic ways of exactly. thinking about leadership. I thought you made a really good point in your book 
around people of a marginalized group, leaders stepping in after an epic failure. Okay. And I really enjoyed reading that because I was like, oh my goodness. And then I started to think of all these examples and I could just, <laughs> literally they just started popping into my head. Like I was thinking about Theresa May, our British prime minister who stepped in after David Cameron and then had to sort out Brexit. And then I thought about Rishi Sunak, who's the current prime minister, who's of an ethnic background, who stepped in after we had a very small stint of a woman called Liz Truss. And actually the state of the UK economy at the point where he took it over was really, really quite disastrous. And I was like, oh my gosh, I could just think of two examples instantly. This has really made me think. You said... Coupled with limited space to make even the smallest missteps, marginalised leaders are given less chance to succeed. And if they fail, the system is tricked into thinking that it should return to the traditional approaches that did not work before, without acknowledging the tumultuous environment in which these leaders tried to work. And I think, gosh, and you know what? That's human nature, isn't it? It's, it's, it's that whole kind of oh, well, I knew it wouldn't work out. I knew that, you know, we should have always yeah. just, you know, done, gone with, you know, completely forgetting the way it was before was by far from ideal in the first place. What needs to change it? How do we fundamentally change this pattern, this belief system? There's so many layers to this because it is fascinating. So I call it stealth cleanup in the book. And I also can reflect on many, even like small organizations to large, you know, universities. This like phenomena would happen um, pretty consistently for marginalized leaders, for those that are then stepping into oftentimes very impossible situations with limited support, understanding. And if they're the first or one of the only that represents them or has their background or experiences, data will say that the missteps are more consequential or just like being able to... We're less forgiving. We're less forgiving. When organizations go through epic failures and they place it, the onus on the one individual at the very top, either that person outgoing that maybe created it or the person incoming that now has to fix it, uh -huh. we are not in a sustainable system no. because we're still with this kind of antiquated idea that the person at the top can solve it all when I think yeah. it's much, much more systemic. And so what I think organizations can do, particularly when, you know, we have a new leader coming in and working in this stealth cleanup, that's this impossibility, is to think about also what are the structural elements that created this situation? What are the systems that are, you know, landed us here? And how do we fix those so that the person in this role leading this charge has all the supports and, and mechanisms to be able to succeed? And it still is tricky. But I think when we think a little bit more, less individual, more systemic, uh. we get a better understanding of the issues. And we have the person kind of take the tackling this challenge just has a better chance and better support to to be able to lead through and out of whatever the challenge yeah. is and so it's nuanced it's not just an individual challenge no. it's, a, it's a systemic challenge it really is and it does feel there's something deeply within human nature mm -hmm. yeah 
which is less pleasant to talk about, that we kind of automatically think that someone who we deem to be a strong leader, which again, going back to the leadership theories and frameworks are typically represented by white men, that we're much more accepting of their decisions, much more forgiving of some of the things that we almost make excuses for some of their mistakes or errors and, and sweep it under the carpet and almost forget them. But when it comes to people of a marginalized or ethnic group or anyone from a minority group that is much less, that, 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 as you mentioned, the, the, that forgiveness is much less. We're always expecting them, like the opposite, we're expecting them not to do too well. And so when they make one, oh, we, I knew it wasn't going to work out. I knew that they weren't going to be good enough yep. for this job. They weren't up to it. I suppose it does come back. So again, you talk about this deep roots uh-huh. that you know, we really need to start challenging these narratives that are popping up. Why is it okay that Boris Johnson had a party in lockdown? Yeah. That's not okay. And yet there are things that people will be celebrating about how he managed certain things. And it's like, well, but if I wonder, and you know, it's hard to experiment with these sorts of things, but if there was an ethnic minority prime minister or someone from a marginalized group done that, how much more severe would the penalty have been? Uh-huh. And I think that's very real. I often connect with leaders of color, you know, through the organization that there is a mental calculus of how to engage and knowing that you might not be able to show up in the same way or speak in the same way or, you know, show emotion in the same way as somebody else in your organization as you know, the white male leader might be able to do certain things, but for a black woman, there, there, there's no way. There's no way. And that's just a real, like, I think a, an undercurrent of a conversation that I often have. Um, and it's just a reality that we're, again, aware of that needs to, like, come to surface, uh, that, that really yeah. we're experiencing different workplaces and experiencing different paths to leadership that maybe again, haven't been written about or talked about as as much as it should. Yeah, agree. Moving on to slightly later in your book, I have to say when I scanned your contents, I was delighted to see and I actually skipped forward, I have to admit, to this particular chapter because I was really interested in what you were going to say. Okay. And the chapter is called The Deceiving Narrative of Imposter Syndrome. And it's a subject that comes up so often in my coaching, as well as facilitation and um, leadership development in general. What you explain is something that I absolutely agree with, which is that we're constantly referring to this term imposter syndrome, not helped by the fact that we use syndrome as if it's some sort of disease, pointing the finger almost at the individual rather than acknowledging the environmental factors. Again, going back to the root cause, where is this coming from? And I really appreciated your own story as a student, you described that onlyness, and I really appreciated that and where, how you were subtly gathering information that you were an imposter. And that really made me think about how I was brought up and, you know, I was one of three ethnic minority girls in a sea of white, you know, and I had never really thought about how that experience, how my mind psychologically I'd be processing I don't fit in here. I, there's, yeah. you know, how can I prove that I belong here? So do you think that 
imposter syndrome, because that's what we're calling it, and just so everyone knows what we're talking about, even though we don't like the label, but do you think imposter syndrome is a symptom of being marginalised, Ben? I would say in a lot of cases, yes, particularly when we think about imposter syndrome being more prevalent, quote unquote, with women with people of color, we should be questioning, again, the root why. If it is more prevalent in, in for certain of us, then why is that? And I want to make the case that it is in that experience of being like marginalized or just being, you know, like, like I think we share a kind of similar experience out of like in, in school, you know, just realizing that I'm different than everyone else. I look different than everyone else. And there's no like explicit exclusion here. It's just noticing. It's processing that. And then I think is realizing that I think it fuels this sense of being an imposter, quote unquote, of not belonging, of being other, you know, like just being different. And, And so then here comes this kind of narrative that for me, like really thrived in my mind uh, all the way up through graduate school. You know, I would not really speak in class because I was just so in my head of not feeling like I belonged, like I had already just kind of taken myself out of the game. Um, And so where I really wanted to call out that it is a deceiving narrative is because for a lot of us, and many times it is if we've experienced marginalization or if we're experiencing kind of spaces where we're the first, a few, one of only, you know, any of those experiences, then that's probably more of the issue than us okay. being at a deficit. I always kind of say that it's, it's not an individual deficit, it's a systemic deficit. Then we, again, are not creating systems that are are supportive and robust and and diverse and really natural how they should be that represents all of us that that where we all kind of feel like we belong because we see that we belong it's an unfortunate kind of labeling and narrative i I understand the source when the 70s they kind of did the research which makes sense but i think now in today's age it's become like a whole marketplace (laughs) around imposter syndrome and I think we're looking the wrong way. It's not for us to individually overcome. It's for systems to inhibit that, to inhibit those feelings. Agree. Really tough ask. And that takes a lot of work for the system to shift, right? And actually, I mean, we we can't finish un- until we've spoken about the, the sort of ultimate of your book, the whole, you know, where it leads us to, which is this concept of our zone of untapped capacity. And it's such a beautiful concept. And as soon as I read this idea about our untapped capacity, it really felt like we were opening up possibility to leverage what we have as minority or marginalized individuals using the qualities that I have, the skills that I have, the way that I observe the world to my benefit, but also to the organization and the world's benefit. And it was wonderful. So can you please just expand on that idea? Just tell tell us more. Yeah. Some listeners may have heard of the book, The Zone of Genius um, by Gay Hendricks. And this is kind of a, you know, add-on or expansion of that, of really kind of thinking about our zone of untapped capacity really sits in that intersection where the spaces and places we have 
power and privilege. We all do in a variety of respects. We can even say listening to this podcast, you have access to knowledge, you, you know, then there's privilege here. Um, and then the ways that we have marginalized perspectives, the ways that we maybe experience things differently, see things differently, or have less of that privilege, have less of that power. But in that, we have that power of perspective. Again, that idea of looking at oh. the elephant, there's certain ways that we see the full elephant. And so what I'm encouraging readers and everyone that kind of I, I connect with, um, particularly those we're underrepresented, again, with the, these perspectives, is your zone of untapped capacity, that intersection between the way you can leverage your power and privilege and the way you can leverage your marginalized perspectives in there lies this like untapped leadership. In there, I think, lies the purpose or the true impact of your work, of your leadership, of your career, whatever that may be. And so, you know, I use myself as an example. You know, my traditional power and privilege lies in educate traditional education, like formal education. Uh-huh. I've had past roles with the, the big titles and then, you know, there comes power within that. Um, yeah access to tools and writing, all those aspects, I think they're there. My marginalized perspectives, again, as I mentioned, is just kind of being a BIPOC identifying woman in the leadership field um, and uh-huh. just kind of seeing the ways that it, I haven't felt like it represented me. And so this zone of untapped capacity really bridged those two to do this work for me. I mean, this is kind of on a large scale that um, you know, that's where I was able to find my leadership, my purpose in being able to lean on some of those traditional uh, aspects of power and privilege where it gives me clout in traditional ways. And then also making sure I bring in the ways and what I'm seeing um, and that, that has been marginalized. And so leveraging yeah. those two. And so I think when I work with leaders and and again leaders of all backgrounds and experiences i challenge folks to think about leadership in this way that you know if we're really kind of trying to lead in this new world this ever-changing and really kind of perpetual crisis a lot of times yeah then how are we making sure we're bringing in those aspects that we have overlooked in the past because in there might be some innovation, new ideas and solutions and leveraging kind of the the weight behind them that that you know society will give us um, in in those spaces. And so I really want to challenge folks to kind of think about work and life in that zone um, and let's see what emerges. Exactly. And it's such a beautiful way. And as I say, it's very empowering a way of looking at it. We're not going to change everything around the system, the roots. That's going to take time. It's going to take work. Right. We're here right now leading. How can we leverage everything that we have for the benefit of the organization world or society? And it's a beautiful way of being able to support people to look at what they're bringing and see what they can offer. Yeah. I've really enjoyed hearing There's so much more I can ask you about your book. And before we leave, there's actually a question I'm asking all my guests this season. And that is related to the book that I'm writing, or have written, in fact, which is out in March next year. And I'd really like to know, what is the most uncomfortable thing that you've had to manage in yourself or oh, yeah. address 
a conversation maybe you've had to have that has been particularly uncomfortable and that you've had to work through? I'm so excited for your book, by the way. I think this that discomfort and you know being uncomfortable. I don't love it, but it's like so necessary, right? To be candid, all of this, like these conversations, and we're really we're getting into this space around untapped leadership, calling something out on such a wider, larger scale is highly uncomfortable for me. I'll just say it. You know, I, again, it was kind of read the narrative, think about the narrative. I unpacked imposter syndrome for a long time and I didn't, you know, share my perspective, share my voice. And now I just trying to undo that and put things out there and really kind of stake a claim of, you know, well, my perspective matters and it's important and the world needs it. And, and that honestly is a very uncomfortable (laughs) exercise to be out there kind of having it's so vulnerable, isn't vulnerable. it? Vulnerable. Yes, it is. It's something that I kind of try to support in others, but I'm honestly working within myself as well. Is like, how do we kind of say the thing that no one else has said or that we don't hear a lot of people saying? Because that thing, no matter what it is, is actually essential, you know, to this. And um, it's just a very uncomfortable place to be. Yeah. Because you, you know, I agree. The world is hard and you are kind of exposed in a lot of ways. And so finding that comfort in that discomfort is a journey, I'd say. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. And having written a book as well, completely resonates with me what you're saying in terms of really putting yourself out there, putting your voice in the room and going, this is my voice here, right here. But I tell you something that has helped me is speaking to people like you, other authors as well, and other people, there's sort of comfort in numbers, even though it's hugely uncomfortable. Yeah. There's something that's like, actually, we're- I love that. We're we're together in in this discomfort. That's right. And there's this collective discomfort. That's right. I love that. Thank you, Jenny. Thank you. Such a pleasure. Uh, I was so excited to speak to you. and, And now I'm just thrilled that we've got such an amazing conversation recorded Thank you. Thank you so much. This was such a pleasure. I I can't wait for your book. I'll say it twice. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. That concludes episode 37 of Why Care. This conversation provoked so much thought for me in how little we critically observe the fruit from the tree before we take a bite. I really appreciated how Jenny articulated the zone of untapped capacity, which is incredibly empowering. Do let Jenny and I know what you thought of today's show. You can find me on LinkedIn, Insta and X, formerly Twitter with the handle at Nadia Nagamutu. If you're a fan of Why Care, then you'll probably have picked up by now that I have written a book. It's called Beyond Discomfort, Why Inclusive Leadership is So Hard and What You Can Do About It. And it's out in March, 2024. You can pre-order your copy on Amazon. As always, I really appreciate your support of this podcast through leaving a review on whatever platform you're listening and spreading the word by sharing it with your friends and family. Huge thanks to Mauro at Kenji Productions for editing this podcast and Glory Orubori for supporting with the show notes and getting it out there on social media.